0: be at Griffith and it's good to see you Sean and and, uh, all you can eavesdrop if you want to have a little conversation with Sean here so proud of you I remember how many years ago has it been that we stood on the stage at Town and Country for an ordination do you remember what year that was 1997 I got to preside over an ordination for a young preacher named Sean Cornett and I was so proud then and more proud now (laughs) they do a good job of eavesdropping don't they yeah they listen well and, and I'm so proud. I follow online. And uh, my, my kids call that something creeping. Is that what it is when you watch things online? But I listen to the messages. Solid biblical preaching. Sean, you have a great vision for this church and your process thinking to get something from a point to an end point. It just is great. And I'm so stoked about what's going to happen here in the future. And I know you are as well. And it's good to be with you today. Now, I have another piece of business I need to do before we preach. I'm with the Solomon Foundation. We've helped many churches in the United States and in this area. I'm a a regional rep. My job is to take care of, of everything from the Canadian border to the Gulf of Mexico, from the Chicagoland area on the east to the west to the Dakotas, where I leave for tomorrow, and all the way south through Texas. And so if it's cold in the wintertime and doesn't have a pretty beach, it's mine to take care of. And so and so I, I get Griffith. And uh, uh, many people have invested with us over time. We're a very fast-growing organization. We've helped 140 churches and counting get new or improved or expanded facilities because they were growing churches that couldn't get help any other way. And we've helped them with that. I'm going to give you just two numbers. In those churches that we've helped, we draw a line at their attendance when we help them. And then we track what happens after they get a better toolbox, and in those churches today, 85,000 more people are in church today in those facilities than were when we helped them. That's fantastic. And everyone is a restoration movement, Christian church, Church of Christ. Second number is even better. In those churches, since the date they received that better toolbox, there have been 18,000 baptisms and counting. And we're so excited to be. We're not a bank. Uh, banks don't really care how many baptisms y'all have. Uh, Our job is to help churches get to the next step in making disciples. Now, I I need you to do this for me. This is like really serious now because when my wife comes with me, she's way better looking than me and she stands in the lobbies of churches and it's her job to pass out brochures. When I travel without my wife, I come home with almost all the brochures I leave with. It's kind of embarrassing. The first thing she'll ask me, how many brochures did you give away? You need to help me. I want everybody here to walk away with one of these brochures, even if you cannot read or write. Take one and pretend, because I want to go home and tell her I got rid of all of them. But there's some great information here. Uh, Passbook saving account, yeah, 2.25% interest, fixed rate. Uh, uh, CDs, a 4.65% fixed rate on a five-year. You can't get that anywhere. If you've got an IRA from a place you used to work, or you decide you want to start a new one, and and get ready for retirement, we do that as well. Same fixed rate, no stock market, 100% of the money goes to building churches and helping people find Jesus. And so we're glad to partner with you all. Grab one of these. I'll be out there uh, when we're done today. So now here's what I want to do. I I, want to preach, but I have to tell you a little bit of of an incident that occurred this morning. And I'm on my way to church here, and, and I've spent 20 years in the region. And you say that phrase anywhere in the country and you find out if anybody is from northwest Indiana because you see, oh, yeah, the region. That guy, no, he's been there. And so when I say to you, you know, when I say it elsewhere, they go, so I, I know the region. But it's been a long time. So I'm a little out of my element. So I'm driving in this morning and and I'm driving past a home and there's smoke coming out from under the eaves of the roof. And I, I look as I'm driving by slowly and there's kids running around in the house and there's some adults. I can see them through the windows. And, and obviously, they're just doing whatever they do. They, they're not in any panic. They don't know their house is on fire. So I don't know what to do. Th- this is not my home. I didn't know what to do. And I'm pretty close to the church. So I race here to the church. And Brandon <coughs> is the first one I see. And I tell Brandon what's going on. And Brandon kind of goes into a panic. And he says, oh, my. He said, that's kind of a big deal. We better find Sean. I'm just the associate minister. I, I, I've got to find, you know. And so we can find Sean. I tell Sean the story. And Sean says, wow. That is, you know, we have three services. And so not all of the elders are in every service, and our next meeting is next week. I'm putting that number one on the agenda for our elders meeting so we can decide how to respond to that house being on fire. Now, already you figured out, first of all, there was no house on fire. Because if there were, I would have broken into that house, whether I knew them or not, if they didn't know their house was burning, and I would have forcibly drugged them out of the burning house. And so would you. But it illustrates this. Churches in Western culture are extremely good at having meetings and formulating plans, but not very good at responding to people burning. And they are. And they are. Today, 80% of everybody you will encounter have no place, they call church home, and have no relationship with Jesus. That's a real stat in America. They're on fire, and they don't know it. How do we respond? How do we become useful in a world that is in such dire need? Now, I believe that, that the church has to change. This church is doing a great job. But the church in general has to change to be useful in a culture that changes. You know everything changes. There was a day when I would jump out of bed. You, you, some of you will know what this means. It was morning. I wake up. Man, I jump out of bed. I hit the floor running. I'm ready to go for the day. Now I wake up, and before I jump out of bed, I take inventory. Amen? Some of you know what that means? You do. I start, I move body parts before I get up to make sure they still move and they feel Okay. Then I get up a little slowly, and then I start moving. And and things change, don't they, whether you want them or not. And we all say in the church, well, we want change. We want the church to change to meet the needs of culture. But we want change to taste like donuts, not asparagus. Don't change the stuff I like, but change the church so it's more effective. How do we really become useful in a culture that doesn't even know they're broken? I want to give you a formula today. Just four words. They're going to be easy to remember. And we're going to base it in a story that many of us in this room learned on a flannel graph board. Now some of you in the room go, what is that? Is that some new technology? Yes, it is. It's this board that we grew up with that had cloth, flannel, on a piece of plywood. And then you had these cut out figures that told Bible stories. And the kid that never paid very good attention was always the one that got to come up and put the stuff on the board as the teacher was telling the story. I got to always do that. So I remember this story. It's a feeding the thousands where you had the little fish and you had the little loaves and you had the crowd of people. And as the story was told, you put them on the board and you made the picture. And that's how you remembered the story. And so this story is so familiar of the feeding of the multitudes that we could tell it right now. It's in every gospel account. It happened twice. Once Jesus fed 5,000 men, and next time 4,000 men. And, and we, we know that that's just a partial number because they just counted men. So fifteen to 20,000 people each time, and it's recorded. And we can find any of those recordings of that story in the Scripture and teach this same principle. We're going to use Luke chapter 9. And in telling this story, we have to give Jesus a sense of humor. Have you ever noticed that whenever there's a picture of Jesus, he's always stoic, stern, not happy. Jesus was funny. And when you read the scripture with a sense of humor, you get to see Jesus laugh. I think he starts this story laughing. So we're going to read the story differently. We're going to look at it because we always thought, well, maybe the lesson of the story was about the disciples who didn't have enough faith. Yeah, that's a a good lesson. Maybe the lesson of the story was about the people that just came to Jesus with all the expectations, but they weren't prepared. Ah, That's a good lesson. But what if we look at it today and we become the bread in the story? And everything Jesus says now affects us because we're the bread. Pick up the reading, chapter 9, verse 13. But he said to them, Now, this is where it starts with him being funny. They they see all these thousands of hungry people. They come to Jesus. Jesus, these people are hungry. And Jesus, I think, smirks, laughs, says, Okay, feed them. And then stop. You give them something to eat. Well, they responded, We have no more than five loaves and two fish. You know what they were really saying? They weren't saying, look at all we have. They're saying, we got nothing. Unless and then they they look at Jesus, maybe they're laughing now nervously. Unless you want us to go and buy out of our own resources food for all these people? Because there's like more than five thousand here. Now let's let's accept some facts about our culture. There are three. Fact number one, we're not up to the task before us. Can we accept that reality? All the lost people, we're not up to it. Neither were the disciples. Fact number two, the need is great. Remember, you know more lost people than saved people. But fact number three, Jesus does expect us to do something about it. Now, how do we reconcile those facts? Look at the rest of the story. Verse 14, about in the middle. And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. They did so, and had them all sit down, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Now the template for a purpose-filled life, if we are the bread will give us four words. That's all you have to remember today. And the first one we find in verse 16. And taking the five loaves and the two fish. So the first is this. Taken by God. I ask the question, have you ever been taken by God? Be careful with the answer. I reflect about 45 years ago in a church, much like this one, a young trembling groom, me, me, about right there a beautiful bride was being escorted down the aisle by her father now anybody in this room had a marine no marine there's a marine okay when i say this you will know there's some back there. okay are you a marine or were you a marine always a, once a marine you all know this don't you always a marine okay how do you think I knew that? My father-in-law was a Marine, and he taught me that. He told me that repeatedly. I'm not sure why he wanted me to know that so bad. He wanted to, I. You know, he's escorting my my wife to be down the aisle. This Marine, and the preacher stands up with his black book, and he says this much like you did last night, Sean. Betsy, will you take this man to be your lawfully wedded? husband. She jumps all over that and she says, absolutely, I've waited my life for this man. Okay, it's just a story. Go with me here. But I interrupt her and I said, wait a minute. Before we answer these questions, can we define the terms? What do you mean taken? Because you understand, I still have some girlfriends. I, I really want to be married but I want to keep them as well if that was a real story which it's not that marine I wouldn't be here today we wouldn't be married and and I would have known what he meant by telling me all those times that he was a marine and he, no, I, that would be stupid we know what it means in marriage but Jesus expects the same thing are you fully taken are you able to leave behind what needs to be left behind and move forward singly with him? I just recently reread something I do on a regular basis, C.S. Lewis, Tape Letters. In that marvelous old work written in 1942, he explains in this beautiful symbolism of what it means when the demon is, is conversing with an uncle who is a, a, a super demon in hell. And he says, don't panic because your victim, the human, has joined a church just convince him that that is a Sunday-only thing and it doesn't require every day a week because he wants to know he's really not fully taken. So when we look at the formula, we see what Jesus did. Remember, you're the bread. And taking the bread, that leads us to the second part of the formula. Listen to verse 16 again. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven... And said a blessing over them. Can you picture it? Holding the bread. Saying a blessing. Without the blessing of God, you cannot succeed. I recall this. I was 15 years old, skinny, a pencil. That's what I was. Six foot one and and uh, a pencil. Just a kid. And I'm, I'm in our church. little church in, in sub, uh, central southern Illinois. Little wooden building with wooden floors that creaked whenever you walked. Had wooden pews on about that side, five rows back. That was a pew that had two spots in it that were hewn out exactly the size of my parents' backsides. You know, they sat there every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night for all those years. And if anybody ever sat in that spot, heaven help them. That was theirs. And everybody else in that little church had their own spot. Now, I was a teenager. Our spot was in the back row on the other side because we could pay attention better there church was over, our preacher was Pastor Mitchell, little man about that tall. I think he mowed the lawn in his black suit, white shirt, and necktie. Oh, we never saw him in anything but that. His wife was Mrs. Mitchell. I didn't know her first name because he always called her Mrs. Mitchell, and she called him Pastor Mitchell. It was just kind of like this weird thing, and he was so exciting to listen to preach. It was like every Sunday watching paint dry, Sean. He was not. Now, I'm not being mean. I, you need to hear the whole story before you understand. He, he never preached for a church of more than 75 people in his whole life that's Sunday after church I'm coming down the middle aisle to, to see my parents I, I have no idea why doesn't matter he stopped me in the middle church was out there he stood with Mrs. Mitchell by his side he reached up to this tall lanky kid put his hand on my shoulder and he said Lynn you're going to be a great preacher and Mrs. Mitchell and I are going to pray for you every day that, that, that shook me because I, I didn't want to be a great preacher. I didn't even want to be a bad preacher. I'd never thought about being a preacher. Fast forward just a, a few short years later, in my age, some of you will understand this, that my brother was in Vietnam, and now it was my turn. And during those years, I graduated high school. I had about three, I had two choices, really. I could either go to college or go to the Army. And so I, I went to college, Lincoln Christian College, because there I, I got to do two things. Not go to Vietnam and play basketball. And it took the same GPA to accomplish both. And my grade point in every state, exactly right there, it's kind of a miracle how that worked. And so there I was. I was not interested in really doing ministry, but it was a good place to be during those years of my life. I had to take bible classes and I had to take preaching classes and they were really hard for me because I wasn't that interested And I never could really shake the fact That there were people That had put a blessing on my life that were praying for me every day and when it got hard I knew they were praying for me and I just hung in there I just hung in there. Can we fast forward again? What i'm going to say right now You have to keep in the context of this story and not take it as any kind of a boast because it is not remember my pastor He wasn't real dynamic, but man, did he love us. There were any number of young people, boys and girls, that they had blessed like that, that have spent their lifetime in ministry from that little country church, going places where he could never go. I have been blessed with the opportunity to preach before thousands of people on multiple continents. He could never do that. And yet I tell you this, he has been there through the people that he blessed. My question is this. Me first, then to you. Who have I blessed? Who have you blessed? Somebody blessed your life. A preacher, a grandma, a grandpa, a mom, a dad, an uncle, an aunt, a Sunday school teacher. Somebody did that. And right now, I'm confident that you're thinking of somebody. But the deeper question is what young person in this church... Have you put your hand on their shoulder and said, God's going to do something great in your life, and I'm going to pray for you? Because hear this, they will never forget that moment. Jesus took you, the bread, and he blessed you. Oh, we could stop there because that's kind of cool. But the story's not over. We could stop because the next part I don't even like. Let's read it. Verse 16, still, then he broke the loaves. The third of a four part template of life is this taken, blessed, and broken. We're all broken. Everybody in this room is broken. And, and I've determined this that there are really only three ways that we can ever be broken. Way number one is we do stupid things, we sin. We're just not careful. We just do things that, that break us. We all know that right now. You're thinking, yeah, I know I did this. And yeah, that was the, the result of my sin or my, my not doing things smart. I'm broken. Yeah, I get that. And, and then there are times we're broken because others do it. Maybe it's infidelity, abuse, alcoholism, or some addiction, or maybe a drunk driver. We could come up with a list. Other people's sin and their flaws have caused brokenness in my life. I, I get that. That's number two. And the third way is, well, we just live in a broken world. Since Adam and Eve sinned, it's been a sinful place. And whether it's the tornado in my town of Joplin, Missouri, that killed 165 people, uh, it's just a fallen, broken place. Or maybe, as some of you know my story, that in 1995, my daughter was killed in a car wreck in front of the church building at Town & Country. Just because it was an accident. It's bad things happening for no real expressed reason. I need you to hear this statement. We spend far too much time trying to figure out why we're broken than what God can do with the brokenness. So can we just relax in this? We're broken. Leave why to all the professionals, but ask the question, now God, what are you going to do with the brokenness. Make no mistake, you are broken and will be broken again. I remember a brokenness in my life multiple times. I spent some years in the Philippines. After we retired from the ministry in Missouri, we spent some years in the island of Mindanao working with homeless kids. There are millions of them. One night... We were awakened because some officials had brought a child to us that had been taken out of the sex trade. She was 14-ish years old, we really didn't know. Had the mental capacity of a 5 or 6-year-old, and she was also physically handicapped. And she had been in used for prostitution for the sex trade from people from Australia. She was taken out that night. The man who was with her and the pimp who was pimping her were taken to jail. She was brought to our care. She was a mess. Destroyed. I was angry. I was livid. To the point I wanted just 10 minutes with the guy. I don't know why, but then after that I would tell him about Jesus. So... Our director and I go to the jail the next day where they had taken them. And I said, where is the man that was arrested with Zenaida? The magistrate, in almost some pride, said, oh, sir, he has been released. I said, why, sir? You know the penalty for such crimes in our country is mandatory 25 years in prison. He said, yes, I do. He said, you would not expect us to keep this man in prison over a retarded street girl. That's his words. Now I wanted just 10 minutes alone with him. I had to turn away, go back to our compound with my director, and he said to me, Sir Lynn, you are broken. I said, yes, I am. He said, tomorrow... We shall sabioth. I said, what is that? He says, you are a spiritual man. You know what a sabioth is. He says, no, I, what is sabioth? He says, you know, God created six days and then he had sabioth. I said, you mean Sabbath? He says, yes, yeah, sabioth. <laughs> he says, you don't do that well. I said, no, I don't. He said, at sunrise tomorrow, we shall go to the mountain and spend time with God. And it was there that he taught me these four-part principles of life. And he says, God can only use you now to help these three kids when you experience their brokenness. He was right. It was only then that I could really minister to them. So right now, when I said you're broken, almost everybody in the room started thinking of the ways your life has been broken. And Satan wants you to give up at that point. God says, now you're ready. Now I've got you where I want you. A few years ago, I had the privilege of helping coach a high school basketball team in Webb City. And the superintendent said, would you go and be assistant coach? Because we've got a bunch of young coaches... <clears throat> and and they they really need some mentoring. Yeah, their families. I their, say, yeah, that'd be fun. I love basketball. So I did that. Well, our school has won, like, I think now 14 state football championships in, like, the last 20 years. It, it's a football school. So if you're a basketball coach in a football school, you're like, and, and, and then they get to play basketball. It's nothing big. And so we always play football until Thanksgiving weekend because that's when the state tournament is. And basketball season starts the next week. And it's the same kids. They're not ready to play basketball. So everybody that we thump in football wants to be on our basketball schedule before Christmas. So they get their shot at us when we're not ready. And so we're playing our neighbor, Joplin High School, and they they didn't play football that well. And we beat up on them pretty good, and they're in our gym. And I tell you the short version of the story, they're ahead 35 points at halftime in our gym. It was humiliating. Our head coach was a young guy. He was six foot nine with a size 17 shoe. He, I tell you that, he it was hard to hide him. He's walking out of the gym with the team at halftime to the locker room, and he just looks at me and he says, "Coach Rags, you got the halftime talk. I got nothing. What am I gonna say?" So the boys go in. They're all sitting on the bench. They got their head hung, and and I just start pacing, trying to think, what am I gonna say? I felt like. Peter at the transfiguration, not knowing what to say, he said. So I just started talking. I said, boys, we've got them right where we want them. I really didn't know what was going to come next out of my mouth. And <clears throat> one by one, they started looking up at me. And I said, said, nobody can score that many points in one half and not be exhausted. <laughs> then they all start laughing. I said, yeah, can we accept some things right now? We are not going to win this basketball game. Now, in Missouri, I don't know how it is here. In second half, if you're 35 points up, they call it mercy clock, fast clock. The clock doesn't stop for fouls, for anything. It just keeps going to get this, this massacre over with. And so I said, this is our gym. Our goal now is to not let that fast clock turn on in the second half. That means we have to outscore them in the second half. We lost by 33 points. We outscored them by 2 points, and the fast clock didn't run. Now, at the end of the game, of course, they were delighted. They had put a whooping on us. And our boys were all cheering at each other, saying, yeah, we did it. And the fans could figure out, what is going on? Here's the point. Satan wants you down and defeated because you're broken. And God says, oh, I've got you right where I want you. You're going to be more. Oh, we're ready for the fourth part. Here it is. The third part, the final part of verse 16, Luke 9, starts this and gave them the the brokenness, the pieces, to the disciples to set before the crowd, and they were all satisfied. And what was left over, can you believe it, was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. He used the broken pieces to satisfy broken people. Wow. Now, I have to tell you that, that, that I, I saw it. I saw the principle in every character of the Bible. You, you can't find a character that doesn't have this template. But the real picture didn't come clear. So one day I was reading the Apostle Paul teaching the church in Corinth about the Lord's Supper. Just, just listen to what he said in the 11th chapter. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had blessed it, he broke it. And he said, this is my body to be used for you. Jesus was drawing a picture in your life and mine of his life. Never will you be more like Jesus than when you're broken and used. He's calling us right now to be used in a broken world. Not in spite of our brokenness, but because of it. Because Satan cannot win. Do you know what the end of the Lord's Supper celebrates? The resurrection. You will not be broken forever. Oh, God bless you. God bless you already for the impact you're having in this greater region as a church. Because I don't know all of you, but I'm going to make a prophecy. You're messed up, broken people. And you know a bunch of messed up, broken people, but they don't know Jesus. Be used. God help us to be used. Never let our brokenness keep us tied down and anchored and tethered to that brokenness. But may we identify with Christ and be used with His power. In the name of Jesus, amen.